People have an instinctive desire within them to have others look at them favorably. A child wants the approval of his or her parents. Most people are quite concerned about what their friends think of them. An employee will work hard to gain his employer's appreciation. There are times when people will go to incredible lengths to get the affirmation of others. They may give in to peer pressure. They may do what others think is cool just to fit in. They'll devote time, give presents, or do whatever they think it takes to get someone else to respect or to admire them. Getting the approval of others may make our lives smoother or somewhat more enjoyable in this life. But the approval of people really matters little in comparison with the approval of God. The central question every religion in the world seeks to answer is this. How do we come into the right relationship with God? Buddhism teaches the need to follow an eight-step pathway to reach nirvana. Islam has developed Shi'ara law, a fixed code of behavior all Muslims are to follow. Judaism teaches the need to live according to the law of Moses. Roman Catholics believe that through prayer and good deeds, they can contribute towards their salvation. The thing that all these have in common is that they are duty religions. You must do such and such. You must live in this and that way in order to be saved. The Christian faith is different. It teaches that there is nothing we can do to get God's approval. There is no possible way for us to earn or merit God's favor. There is only one way to be saved, through the mighty works that Jesus Christ has done for us. In the Catechism, we're now considering the works of Christ our Savior. Last time we focused on His conception and birth on how Jesus came into this world as a real human being. Today we focus on his suffering and death. We see that Christ had to suffer and die to deliver us from God's wrath, from his judgment and his curse. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. By his suffering, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. We'll consider the dreadful curse, the glorious redemption, and the blessed result. In Lord's Day 15, we continue to work our way through the Apostles' Creed. We focus on how Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, and died. Yet the focus is not just on the events that happened in Christ's life. Instead, it is on why he suffered why he was condemned, why he was crucified. Our catechism frames Christ's suffering as being necessary to bear God's wrath against the sins of the whole human race. 
It says that he was condemned to free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Explains that Christ was crucified, hung on a cross, to assure us that he took on himself the curse which lay on me. What then is God's curse? It is his powerful word of wrath against sinners that brings desolation, death, and damnation. God's curse is the opposite of his blessing. When God speaks well of someone, they are blessed to live in fellowship with him and to enjoy all his good gifts. But God's curse is something that thrusts the wicked from his fellowship and brings judgments on them, both in this life and in the life to come. We need to understand there's a great difference between God's words of cursing and man's words of cursing. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. You see, when others curse us, they only speak words into the air. We may hear them. Perhaps they hurt our feelings, but they are powerless in their effect. Someone may say, damn you, but their words do not have the power to deliver you to hell forevermore. People will curse us for different reasons, perhaps to make them feel powerful or to make us feel fearful. But in the end, they are just spouting hot air. That's different when God curses someone. God's word is powerful. God's word is so powerful that he created the world and all that's in it simply by speaking. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Think of what Balaam said about the Lord in Numbers 23. He said, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? When God blesses, no one can revoke that blessing. When God curses, no one can lift that curse. Now, God does not curse people without cause. There's a specific reason why he curses certain people. You read about that in Galatians 3. In Galatians 3, verse 10, Paul quotes from the Old Testament where it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. As people, it is by breaking God's law that we come under his curse. God's curse rests on all lawbreakers, on those who do not live according to his holy commands. In Galatians 3, verse 10, Paul quotes a passage from Deuteronomy 27. Deuteronomy 27 tells us about how the Israelites were to renew the covenant with him when they entered the promised land. Six of the tribes were to stand on Mount Gerasim to bless the people, and the other six of the tribes were to stand on Mount Ebal for the curse. The curses were given first. 
Deuteronomy 27.15 records the first curse. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast image and sets it up in secret. It's a curse on those who bow down to worship other gods. Sin against the second commandment. And all the people shall say, Amen. In other words, we agree. Verse 16 says, Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or mother. That's sin against the fifth commandment. And again, all the people shall say, Amen. Verse 17 pronounces a curse against anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. By moving a boundary mark, you are effectively stealing property from your neighbor. Verse 19 pronounces a curse against those who perverted justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or those who were easily exploited. These were curses against those who broke the Eighth Commandment, stealing from their neighbor. The following verses pronounce a curse on those who committed sexual sins like incest and bestiality, and against those who murdered their neighbor in secret. And after the reading of each curse, the whole congregation was to repeat, Amen. We agree. We want to live in covenant fellowship with God. We acknowledge that doing these things will bring God's curse upon us. The whole passage is summed up in Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. It's this verse Paul quotes in Galatians 3, verse 10. He writes, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now the problem, beloved, is that none of us can abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. The problem is not in the law itself. God wrote the law. It is a reflection of His righteousness. The curse of the law is God's terrifying word of rejection for all the people who do not live according to the standard He set. Everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law deserves to come under God's curse. So where did this curse come from? When did it fall upon mankind? At the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve. God told them, the day they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. It's on that day that the curse would come. We know that they did eat of this forbidden tree. And the curse did fall on our first parents. They experienced separation from God. God spoke of how the ground was cursed because of them. The reality of the curse was brought home to them when they were banished from the Garden of Eden, where they had enjoyed perfect communion with God. So we see that the fall into sin brought upon mankind the loss of communion with God. It brought his displeasure, his curse. The curse rested on mankind already before the giving of the law. Yet in the law, the Lord speaks of the curses that would come upon His people if they rejected Him as God. 
In Deuteronomy 28, the Lord said to his people, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. There follows a list of the way in which Israel would experience God's curse. God's curse would be upon them whether they lived in the city or in the country. He said he would curse their productivity so that they would not prosper. He said he would curse their going in and their coming out, their work and their family life. He promised to send on them confusion and frustration in all they undertook to do until they were destroyed on account of their evil deeds. The Lord promised to send upon them plague and drought and blight and mildew. He would curse them by sending their enemies to defeat and kill them. He would strike them with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. They'd be oppressed and exiled. When you read through Deuteronomy 28, you get a vivid picture of what it's like to come under God's curse. The curse did not just fall on Israel when God's people turned away from Him in the Old Covenant. The same curse rests on people today. In Romans 1, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Although people knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. The result is God's curse fell on them. He made them futile in their thinking. He gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonorable passions, to a debased mind. The fact that God's curse rests on many people is evident in how they live their lives. Their lives are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. With all their wicked deeds, they're storing up wrath for themselves on the final day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Do we see the curse of God resting on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Often, but not always. There are times when it seems like God is blessing the wicked, while we as Christians may face trials and hardships and persecution. The psalmist spoke of that in Psalm 73. He was envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He was tempted to join the wicked so he too could live a comfortable life. He thought that it was in vain that he kept his heart clean and his hands pure until he realized that God set the arrogant and rich evildoers in slippery places and how they'd be destroyed in a moment, swept away suddenly by terrors. 
The Bible makes it clear that at times God gives good things to wicked people. Jesus said that God makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. But these things are not truly blessings in the sense that God has a good disposition towards evildoers. In the days when Israel was in slavery in Egypt, Pharaoh was one of the richest, one of the most powerful men on earth. Outwardly, it looked like he was tremendously blessed. Yet despite the good life he enjoyed, Exodus 9.16 and Romans 9.17 say, there was one purpose for which God raised him up. It was to show forth God's power to proclaim his great name among the nations when God drowned him and his armies in the Red Sea. So, beloved, what's the point that I'm making? It's this, that God's curse rests on everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. In and of ourselves, this is what you and what I deserve. For by nature, we are sinful people. In our daily lives, we repeatedly sin, both against God and against our neighbor. Thus, we all deserve to come under God's curse. We deserve to suffer under the curse wherever we go and whatever we do. God's curse hangs over us whether we're prospering materially and enjoying good health, or if we're lying in a hospital bed and our life is falling to bits around us. Outside of Christ, God's curse will drag us down to hell to suffer everlasting terrors because God's word is firm and true. We've considered God's dreadful curse. In our second point, we'll see the glorious redemption. We've seen how instead of blessing us, the law comes with a curse. How can we escape that curse? How can we again receive God's blessing? It's the question that stands at the center of the Christian faith. How can I be approved by God? How can I stand in the right relationship with Him? What does it take to live under His blessing? There are really only two possibilities. Either I'm justified by doing the works required of me by the law, or I am saved by faith in Jesus Christ. These two are mutually exclusive. It's one or the other. It cannot be both, for they operate according to different principles. Either you live by doing, or you live by believing. Either, think, either you think you can make it to heaven through human effort, or else you trust in Christ and what He has done for you, for your salvation. In Galatians 3, verse 11, Paul writes, Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. 
On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. With these words, Paul makes it clear that the law cannot save us because we cannot keep it. There is only one way to be saved, by faith in Jesus Christ. What do we need to believe about Jesus Christ in order to be saved? Paul summarizes the gospel message in a few lines. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. With these words, Paul reminds us of the penalty mentioned in verse 10 of Galatians 3. The penalty of the law is God's wrath. God's law pronounces a curse on all who fail to keep it. Each of us, in and of ourselves, is deserving of that curse. Yeah, the good news of salvation is that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. To redeem someone is to pay the price and then to set them free. In ancient times, this word was most often used in connection with the slave market. At times, a friend or relative would buy back a slave from captivity and set him or her free. The slave would be liberated through the payment of a ransom. Jesus Christ has made this payment for us. It's the purpose for which he came into this world. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The cost Christ paid to ransom us was very high. Peter explains in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ. In order to pay this ransom, Christ had to endure God's curse. He had to bear the penalty for all our sins by being condemned by God. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for all his followers. Paul explains the way Christ has saved us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We call this the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. We know what a substitute teacher is, one who fills in for a teacher who is sick. Well, in the same way, Christ served as our substitute. He took our place when it was time for God to demand payment for all our sins. Christ was willing to take the curse we deserved to bear God's punishment against all our sins. How did Jesus do that? Paul explains by quoting from the law of Moses, from Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. It speaks about how anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. The point of hanging a criminal in this way was to expose him to public shame. It was an indication to all Israel that this person had come under God's curse. That's important. For the central fact of the gospel is that Jesus died by being crucified. He was nailed to a cross. He offered up his body and blood 
as a sacrifice for our sins. Paul speaks in one of his other letters about how the cross of Christ is a stumbling block for Jews. Their problem with Christ being the Messiah was that he died an accursed death. The apostolic message was about a man who was so cursed by God, he was crucified. About a man who bore the shame of hanging on a tree. The apostles repeatedly draw attention to this fact. When Peter preached to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, he drew attention to the fact that they had killed Jesus by hanging him on a tree. Peter wrote about how Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. When Paul spoke in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, he described how Jesus was taken down from the tree. Now to the Jews, this was absolute blasphemy. They could not imagine that the way of salvation involved a cursed Messiah on a cursed cross. To put it in a shocking but accurate way, the apostolic message was about a God-damned Messiah. Even for Paul, this must have been a struggle when he first came to faith in Christ. How could the only man who ever continued to do everything written in the book of the law be subjected to this curse? Paul's answer was simple. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ became a curse for us. The law's penalty did not apply to Christ personally because he never broke it. Yet he bore the curse of the law for us. So as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ took the penalty we deserved. He bore God's wrath against our sins. Though innocent, he was condemned to death, that we might be acquitted at the judgment seat of God. Paul speaks in Colossians 2.14 about how God forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to a cross. Christ took our curse upon him that he might fill us with his blessing. He was forsaken by God that we might never more be forsaken by him. He suffered the agony and the torment of hell to deliver us from eternal death that we might share in the blessings of everlasting life. By all this, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. This brings us to our final point, the blessed result. Lord's Day 15 is focused on how Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, and died. Yet the focus is not just on the events that happened in Christ's life. Instead, it's on why he suffered, why he was condemned, why he was crucified. 
Christ suffered in order to bear God's wrath against the sins of the whole human race. Christ was condemned to free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Christ was crucified to assure us he took on himself the curse that lay on me. And so the Catechism teaches us about how we can be approved by God, how we can be restored to righteousness and life. It's not by human effort. We cannot please God by our own good works. No matter how much diligent service we render or how self-disciplined we may be, none of these things can merit anything before God. Trying to earn our way into God's favor only leads to chronic guilt, apathy, depression, and failure. For we will always fall short to the perfect obedience God demands from those who seek to make themselves right through the works of the law. It is in Christ alone that we escape God's curse and we receive his blessing. One of those blessings is that Christ has sent his spirit to live in us. By his power, we submit our lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ. The spirit helps us to put to death the sinful nature in us, to live God-pleasing lives. Because Christ lives in me and I in him, I begin to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit in my daily life. Another of God's blessings is that he has spared us from the judgment of hell. He grants us life eternal. Even though we may not experience all God's blessings in this life, we will certainly experience them in the life to come. We may look forward to a glorious future, to living with him in perfect joy and unity forevermore. Thanks be to God for sending Jesus Christ to suffer and die for us and thereby to redeem us from his curse. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel by rising and singing hymn 28, stanzas 2, 4, and 5. <laughs> 